He's a former firefighter, a former assistant fire chief. As a result of his years as a firefighter, auto accident scenes, extrications, cold water rescue, fires, unattended deaths, unexpected deaths, he developed post-traumatic stress disorder with a massive substance abuse problem. He's here to talk about that, his recovery, and much more. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. Ever miss an episode of the Law Enforcement Today Radio Show? Never fear. You can sign up for our free email newsletter and get access to past podcast episodes. Plus, all subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign-up area. That's letradioshow.com. We promise we will never spam you. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Calling us from Minnesota, we have Scott Geiselhart on the phone. Scott is a former firefighter, former assistant fire chief. He's also a speaker. Got a pretty good website, seeingincoloragain.com. We'll talk about why that's important in just a little bit. Scott, thanks so much for being a guest on the Law Enforcement Show. Very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here, and thank you for your service as well. You know, one of the things a lot of people don't get is that there's a, a rivalry, a camaraderie between law enforcement and firefighters. We kid each other a lot. We tease each other a lot. Heck, some people from the outside would say we, we insult each other a lot, but we've always got each other's back, and we're in the same family, red and blue. It doesn't matter. Exactly. Yeah. So your career, how long were you a firefighter? I was a firefighter for 24 years. Um, small town in Minnesota. It's just like 1,300 population. So as I was volunteer, you know, I had the pager. So you're on, on call 24 hours a day? Yeah, 24 hours, seven days a week, yep. i got to be honest with you. I, I've gotten smoke inhalation twice running into burning buildings as a cop. It's no joke. People run into buildings, I don't understand. They're on fire. I really don't get it, and I appreciate what they do. Uh, but the, the cats who do that as volunteers, I really don't get at all. Yeah, and that's a, that's a lot of that's a lot of it is we have full time jobs and we have to walk away from those jobs and and go to a fire scene and and we don't get paid a whole lot to do what we do. So, you know, to be a, a firefighter, period, you have to love helping people. Yeah, and one of the things I think a lot of people don't get, and this goes back to the teasing each other, the whole hey, they get to sleep while they're on duty, all this stuff. Volunteers don't get paid. They, 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 there's some benefits they get. I don't understand them, but. On almost every fire call across the United States, some firefighter is injured. It is an inherently very dangerous job, uh, not just for your physical well-being, your emotional, mental well-being, and things like cancer are, are a huge problem. Yeah, cancer, cardiac, and mental health. That's a That's bad combination. Most of us, I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, we're, we're dying from cancers from going into these houses and and uh, the stress, so we have cardiac issues, and 
the mental health is is just off the charts. When I was a rookie police mo- in the academy, they said the average life expectancy for a Baltimore police officer at the time was 52. And I, I don't I think it's like maybe 57, 58 now for police across the United States. Firefighters are right in line with that. They're not much higher, are they? Yeah, no, it's yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a stressful job, you know, and I, I, I take my hat off to the law enforcement now with everything they're going through. And but, you know, firefighters and EMTs and dispatchers, we've got your backs. Yeah. Well, your career, you, you saw a lot of trauma. You went through a lot. And there's some people want to make a big difference between personal traumas as far as being attacked and, and viewing trauma like accidents, uh, fires, deaths, unattended deaths, whatever it might be. I believe all those things take a real big toll on you. Yeah. And, and that's something I didn't I didn't think about when we started doing the auto extrication is or even being a firefighter is that in a small town, we're going to recognize these people that we're going out to help. And and then they have the benefits and we see the, the parents or the children of somebody that, you know, we, we couldn't save. And wow, that's, that's a heavy burden to carry, you know, thinking that you did everything you could, but you know, you're not God and they still, you still lost them. We did the best we can. And yes, uh, I, I didn't panic, but you get the adrenaline rush. You, it, it's look, you got to do this, this and this. And if it's like policing for you guys, there's a checklist in your mind of things you got to do. And things got, and the whole time you are like, I've got to try to save this person. I got to try to save this person. Oftentimes that's all it boiled down to is I want to save them. Yeah. The training kicks in and it's as soon as those doors open on the truck, you're out there doing what you got to do. And a lot of times you don't want to know who it is. And you just, you know, training just, it's automatic. You train so much that you do everything you can, but it's when you sit down later that it starts catching up to you. And you paid a heavy price for your service in, in firefighting, didn't you? Yeah. Um, yeah, it started getting to me. Um, a lot of nightmares and flashbacks and anger. The anger, I just, you know, I, I didn't understand who I was becoming, and I didn't put two and two together. I figured I was a strong firefighter, and I'm not going to let this stuff bother me, and it was a huge mistake. You would think, if you're like me, that these issues, the anger issues in particular, I could solve them with willpower. I have a lot of willpower in a lot of areas. And I was like, I'm not going to respond to this. I'm not going to get angry. Because unfortunately, you know who got angry at quite often was family members, those closest to me. And no matter what I did, I couldn't stop that. Was that the case for you? Oh, exactly. I mean, it was was frustrating because I couldn't understand why why I'm hurting the people that were closest to me, the ones I loved the most. It was really frustrating because when I would blow up at them, you know, I, I didn't have control. It was like a third party. I was trying to hold myself back from doing this. And yet the words were coming out and I was saying words that I couldn't take back once they were out and it was out, out of anger. And I, I was in denial that it was from the fire service or that I was out of control even. But I knew, you know, deep down, I knew I was out of control. So anger issues were a big problem for you. Were there other things going on as well? Yeah, my drinking um, started isolating from the from the family and going out drinking after work. Spent a lot of time in the bars um, or down at my shop, my repair shop I owned. And then uh, I got into math a little bit. And at the beginning, it was just, you know, once a month, maybe on a weekend, just to party a little longer and figure I had it under control. And it just added up every time a problem 
if that stressed me out, I'd start doing more math. Here's one of the things, and I know it's going to sound crazy when I say this, and I get it, Scott, I really do. I don't think there's a person alive who realizes, hey, I can't handle meth safely. Uh, Same people go, oh, there's someone out there right now that says, I'm going to try heroin for the first time and I'll be okay. And it's not going to, I'm going to use it recreationally. I'm sure that was your mindset. I'm going to self-medicate with this stuff, alcohol, meth, whatever it might be, and I'll be okay. Yeah, you know, and the reason I turned to it mainly was because of the nightmares. I, you know, after a while when things got bad, my girlfriend left me and took our two sons, and and the nightmares were just out of control, and I just wanted them to end. The only way to end those was to stay awake and not shut my eyes. So I would do meth to stay awake, and I stayed awake for a long time. It should have killed me. And that brings about its own set of problems, being awake for a long, long periods of time. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't have personal experience, but we returned to our conversation with Scott Geiselhart. We'll talk more about where methamphetamine took him, alcohol abuse, PTSD symptoms, all as a result of his firefighting career. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. Return our conversation with Scott Geiselhart on the Law Enforcement Today Show. He is a former firefighter, former assistant fire chief. He's also a recovering person, recovering from post-traumatic stress disorder, substance abuse, you name it. And his website is seeingincoloragain.com. Scott, before we went to break, he started talking about obvious symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, substance abuse, nightmares, not being able to sleep. So he started taking methamphetamine to try to stay awake, which created its own set of problems, anger issues, people leaving you all of which was nothing you wanted. I, I think it's fair to say that. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I, it was almost to the point where I started pushing people away because I, I just knew in my heart that I wasn't going to be alive long. I didn't want to live anymore. I just wanted it to be over and I wanted to push my kids away and people that loved me. I wanted to distance myself from them. And so nobody would be hurt when I did die. Um, they would be, it'd be nothing for me to go to a fire scene, you know, look at the situation, maybe, Maybe we lost the entire house and it was just, you know, a big hole in the ground or basement. And I'd, I'd look at that and I'd, I'd look back to see who's, who's close enough to me. And it's like, okay, if I fell into this, it'd be over really quick. It wouldn't jump in the flames. Nobody else would get hurt, you know, and things like that. It was just make it look like an accident. And I mean, that was, that was my life was thinking about how I could get rid of myself and die with some kind of dignity. You're not the first person to say I wanted to go out in a you know, blaze of glory and kind of be a hero because at the meantime they were suicidal. They felt like their burden on everybody's important to them, and they were destroying their lives. Was that how you felt? Oh yeah, I, I mean, when I got to the point where I was doing a line of meth an hour and to stay awake, I never ever dreamt that I was ever going to get rid of the meth. And and at that time, I didn't know it was PTSD. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I thought I had a split personality. And how can I be nice to somebody, turn around and be really mean and angry at the very people that, you know, were the closest to me and were my support? It was just, it was confusing. I was in a tailspin. 
How long into your career did this start happening? I mean, there had to be a point where things were okay, and then they weren't okay. Yeah, and it, it kind of was earlier on because we didn't do auto extrication right away. And then when we started doing that, we, we had a lot of back-to-back car accidents. And it was a lot of them were at night. So, you know, getting up out of bed, getting in the car, getting down to the fire station, going to the car accident, you know, doing what we had to do. And then you go back, you put the truck away, and you go home, and you have a job to do in the morning. So you're trying to get some sleep. And, and when you have those day after day, and it's people you know, it it just, wow. You know, so, you know, right away I was having some issues, but it definitely built over time. And, you know, and I was the kind of guy that, like a lot of people, we want to protect the other one. So I'd be the one volunteering to be right in the, the real bad scenes, you know, so I'd be protecting other ones from having to see it. It sounds like his upper aggression, like many, many people that work as a first responder. And by the way, the thought of being in bed asleep and being called in and you have to go to high alert mode, that is not lost on me. Uh, much of what we did in police work was sheer boredom, followed by absolute life and death panic and adrenaline then back down to sheer boredom again and sometimes that'd be a couple times a day but we never had the situation where i'm in bed asleep for two three hours you get the call and you got to be like on point yeah i mean and then they have that just the startling of the paging you know what it is and you know with with the situations we had where we had bad calls i mean i'd, I'd wake up just cussing at my pager and it's like, no, I can't do another one. But I'd get my clothes on and take off down to the fire hall and I'd do it because that's what we do. I want to go back to the extrications. Jaws of life. Is that the things you're talking about? Yes. Yep. We uh, we did up in Minnesota here, we did a lot of ice water rescues with the Gumby suits. And we go and do that also. Um, you know, car accidents. Sometimes they were on fire. It was not a pretty sight. Uh, pretty sight when we got there. Um, and that's stuff that you don't forget. Um, uh, some, some children involved in accidents. And and as I went on as a firefighter, I actually had my own son. So I would actually start to, in my nightmares, I'd start to visualize my own kids being car accidents and the jaws of life wouldn't start. Or I was paralyzed and I couldn't get a door open and, and they would be screaming. And I mean, that, that was the nightmares that haunted me when I closed my eyes. And then we always have the, uh, the crash sites where they put crosses up for a memorial. And, you know, you ha- there's only so many roads coming in and out of town, so you drive past them constantly. And that just, it was like a flashback every time you go by those, even if the crosses weren't there. It wasn't just like driving down a road. It's, it, it, would, it would affect you really deep down. I mean, this hurt. I can't imagine not hurting. And uh, one of the things I did when I retired from police work, I moved about two hours away. From Baltimore, and even that was too close. And every time I go back to visit Baltimore, I'm a different guy. So now I live in Florida, and that's not far enough away. So to be in the same area where you were a first responder and see these things and drive by the scenes that you got called out to, I'll be honest with you, I don't know if I could do that. Yeah, it, it, it was difficult. And then we have the family members that we know the families and we'd be walk. I'd be walking down the sidewalk or they'd come into my shop and want their vehicle to work, be worked on. And, and, you know, they would be talking and all my mind would be to is like, I failed them. You know, I, I didn't do enough to save their loved ones. And that's when things really switched. When I started blaming myself, 
Um, we had a car accident that involved a young individual and it rolled over into some ice water. And that was the one that broke my back. I mean, we got, the, we got him out. Um, he was a young individual, so they warmed his body up. They resuscitated him. He was underwater for 10 minutes in the ice water at night. And it was a picture perfect rescue. I mean, we had one. We, were sa- we, we actually saved one from the ice water and we we're celebrating. And about a month later, one of the firefighters came in and told me, he said, hey, you know, so-and-so died. He died from a lung infection. And it was like somebody punched me. It's like somebody hit me with a sledgehammer. It's like, you, you got to be kidding me. You know, because all I told myself was I was the one that killed him. It was me. I was on that scene. I pulled him out of that car. I made that rescue with, with the help of the other guys. And I did something wrong. I must have put something in his mouth when I was pulling him through the water. Where they, when they pulled me and him through the water, something must have got in his mouth. And I didn't do it, I didn't do it right. And all the other accidents came forward after that. And it's like, man, I'm a common denominator here. I'm the Grim Reaper. I get that. I, Hyde I, I my- do. One of the things that I think is healthy in, in a first responder field is we critique ourselves. What could I have done different? What could I have done better? And sometimes it's with the help of other people. And they're, no, they're always gentle about it. But the survivor's guilt and feeling like I'm somehow to blame for their demise that's a heavy, heavy hitter. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We'll return our conversation with Scott Geiselhart in just a few moments. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Another reason to like and follow us on Facebook, the mobile Facebook app. You can listen to the podcast there for free. So if you ever miss an episode of the Law Enforcement Today Show, it's always on the mobile Facebook app. You know the one on your phone, which is free. It's easy to access the podcast and great articles, much more. By the way, feel free to send me a message. Say hello. If I can help you, let me know. That's on our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Be sure to click like and follow. Return a conversation with Scott Geiselhart. He is a former firefighter, former assistant fire chief. And he also is a speaker and has a website, seeingincoloragain.com. Just do a Google search for See in Color Again. Scott, I appreciate so much you telling your story. It's not easy to talk about. And for many folks, we live with a mindset of, I'm a good guy. I do the good things. I try to help people. I'm there. And we know our shortcomings. We're aware of those. But eventually, they become worse and worse and worse. When we left, you mentioned that you were doing these extrications and people were dying and you began to feel like you were the common denominator. You were the one who was at fault for them dying. Yeah. And like, you know, like I was saying earlier, yeah, I was on the scene. So yeah, I was the grim reaper. You know, there was something I was, I was jinxed. You know, there was something that I was doing or I was just bad luck. And I didn't count the victories. I only counted the deaths, the fatalities. And it was amazing how after, you know, after I went and got help for this all, um, I found a, a scrapbook and I kept a scrapbook of the deaths. And I don't even remember doing that, but I, I you know, so there was things that would happen in my life that I had, I, I was out of control and the mess was out of control. And, and man, after that accident, I, I just got really, really mean. And, you know, when my girlfriend left after that, a couple of years after that, and 
she had enough. I mean, I don't blame her one bit. And um, that's when the meth really started. I was doing a line an hour and I mean, I was running on fire scenes high on meth and I'm not proud of that. I didn't look like a meth head. It's just, I couldn't, I, I got so tied up in it and it was calm, almost like my, my strength, like it was a really unhealthy coping mechanism. I leaned on no different than drinking. And, um, yeah, in 2014, I had enough. I mean, I went over to my ex-girlfriend's apartment, yelled at my kids again, like I always seem to end the conversations with always yelling at them. And that's when I decided enough's enough. I got to eliminate myself because I've never, I never got physical with them, but that's what I was worried about is becoming homicidal or something like that. And, and I still didn't know what was going on with me. I thought it was a split personality. So I ended up going down to my shop, sat down on my desk, and reached in the drawer and grabbed my forty-four Magnum revolver, put it to my head, and I pulled the trigger. And it clicked, and I couldn't believe what I just did. I'm like, holy buckets, how, how far gone are we? And I, I couldn't believe it clicked, because I, I, I had that sitting there for years, knowing one day I was probably going to use it. And it, 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 did, it doesn't misfire, it's a revolver. And when I emptied it out, I noticed that um, all six rounds were not impacted. The primers were not touched, but it clicked on a revolver. And that, that just threw me into a fog of how, how can that happen? And that's when I started to do a little research. And I did a Google search on my symptoms. I put in uh, drugs, nightmares, flashbacks, anger, hit enter on a Google search, and there it was PTSD. Yeah. And I'm like, I can't have PTSD. I've never been in the military. That, so that's well, that was so common back in the day. If you weren't a combat veteran, you couldn't have PTSD. That's the way people thought of things. Yeah. That's what they kind of related PTSD with was veterans. Well, one thing you talk about is a textbook case. There, there's, And I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't even play one on the radio. But here, here's what people tend to do. You, I'm going to go back in your conversation. You said you were using meth almost every hour, and you're running fire calls, and you're high on methamphetamine at the time. And that's not the guy you want to be. And you said you weren't proud of that. I understand that. But you didn't look like one. And what people see, especially nowadays in the age of video cameras on cell phones, they see a person, a firefighter in your case, a police officer, whatever, acting badly, yelling at people, losing their stuff, and they think... That's a mean person. They need to go to jail. They're a horrible person. They need to be arrested. There's something morally wrong with that individual. What they don't see is what a lot of people like you and I probably see is someone who's sick and suffering. Yeah, and and that's the part that was kind of frustrating because here I was assistant chief, next in line for chief. I turned down the chief position. I walked away from my assistant chief. I, I didn't want to be assistant chief anymore. I went down to a red helmet. And I went down to a yellow helmet, and I went down to not showing up for fire calls, not showing up to the meetings, not showing up to any of the trainings. And that's not who I was at the fire department. That was my life. Suddenly, I changed. I was that negative person on the fire department. And, you know, people noticed it, but who's going to approach, you know, somebody with a lot of years on the fire department and an assistant chief and say, hey, chief, what's going on with you, you know? So it it was it was really difficult. I tumbled out of control, and I was kind of frustrated about it that somebody didn't say something, and some and they did. You know, the police chief and the fire chief came and talked to me, and I I lied to them, and I said I'm just under a lot of stress from the shop, and I was really good at covering things up. But 
when I looked in at PTSD and the symptoms and everything, it's like, I've got them all. Why haven't we been talking about mental health and fire service? And when I reached out for help, nobody was there to help. I mean, I had to make 18 phone calls before somebody would just listen. And that wasn't that long ago. That was 2014. Am I correct? Yes. Yep. July of 2014 was my suicide attempt. So when you started looking for help, when did you find the help was available? How long did it take you? I called a suicide hotline 12 times and nobody answered. I called three other phone numbers that were set up for, for first responders and they were all discontinued, no longer in service. Um, I called a friend of mine that was in law enforcement, asked him for help, asked if he could come over and talk to me. And he said he was going to come pick me up and they were going to take me to the hospital. And all I heard him say was, they're going to lock me up. And it's like, I want to talk to somebody. I don't want to be locked up like an animal. And then I talked to, I called a, a person that was supposed to be there for our fire department and told that person that I tried to kill myself and I think I got PTSD. I need some help. And she set me up for an appointment for a week and a half out. And it's like, are you kidding me? I, I just told you I tried to kill myself. I'm not going to see the sunset. And I was just shocked. And then the very last phone number I called was a nationwide hotline. And um, it was a firefighter that answered. And he basically, I was screaming in the phone, I'm going to kill myself. I, I'm, I can't do this anymore. And he got my name. And he said, Scott, we've got you. We're going to make it through this. We understand what PTSD is. We understand what addiction is. Next thing you know, I'm on the phone with a police chief from Chicago, a fire chief from New York, and they stopped everything just, just to listen, just to talk with me about this. And then they set me up, they helped me set up an appointment for uh, EMDR the very next morning. So it was, it was amazing. I don't know what I would have done. I wouldn't have been here. If that if they went to answer the phone call, because that was my last call. And I'll reiterate, you made multiple calls before that, and there was no answer, or the information you got was weeks and weeks out, and you were in a crisis situation, correct? Yeah, I was suicidal, and I told them that. In police work and in fire, for, and I'm only assuming, because I've never been a firefighter, but when someone says, I'm suicidal, I want to kill myself, we take that very seriously. People may think, and it may be bluffing at the time, but we always take that threat seriously because if they are serious and you don't, there's no walking back the outcome. We do things to try to save their lives, and it's quite often that's having uncomfortable conversations, which is going back to what you said people didn't do. We're talking with Scott Geiselhart on the Law Enforcement Day Show. Scott is a former firefighter, also a former assistant fire chief. He is a speaker. They've got a website, See in Color Again. Do a Google search for See in Color Again or go to seeingincoloragain.com. This is Law Enforcement Day Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Missed an episode of Law Enforcement Today? You don't have to anymore because now you can listen to it on Podopolo. The free new app that makes listening anytime, anywhere so easy. Catch up on shows you've missed and chat with John J. Wiley right there, too. Download for free on the Apple or Google Play stores. That's Podopolo. And John J. Wiley wants to hear from you inside Podopolo. Back to our conversation with Scott Geiselhart on the Law Enforcement Today show. Scott is a former firefighter, former assistant fire chief. He is also a speaker, an advocate. 
helping with PTSD, substance abuse for first responders, you name it. See in color again. Do a Google search for see in color again or go to the website seeingincolorag.com. Scott, again, I appreciate you coming on telling your story because this is not comfortable stuff to talk about. But right now, there are people in and out of fire service versus first responder world, military, that need to hear these things. Yeah, and that's, you know, after I went through my therapy, which was the EMDR for a little over a month, that, like, I couldn't believe it. I mean, this was years building up, and I figured there's no way I'm going to be normal, much less not on meth. And after my therapy and six sessions of that, over a little over a month's time, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And that's where the title of my program comes from is the CNN color again, because on the way home from my therapy, I drove by a sunflower field and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. The yellow, it was, it was in August and, and the, the heads on the sunflowers were, you know, great, huge. And I stopped the car and I had to walk into the field. I couldn't believe it. I haven't seen colors for a long time. And I didn't realize that it was like neon signs because I could tell you what color something was, but it was gray and dark and shadowy. The world I was in, the world I got stuck in. And that's when I walked away from the meth all by myself. And, it, you know, as part of the therapy and I could start dreaming again and not have nightmares and go to sleep and be at peace with myself. I mean, I felt the peace inside me. And then I just couldn't shut up about what happened. And that came as a result okay. of your final phone call with, with the police commander, fire, and other ones that said, we're going to get you some help. Yeah. I mean, if they went to introduce me to EMDR, it, it was it was a lifesaver for me. Explain to us how EMDR worked for you. What did they do? It, um, I actually, once they told me about it and got me the appointment, I, I did a Google search because I was like, okay, what is this stuff? And when I Google searched it, it actually looked like it was witchcraft or some kind of hypnotizing thing. And I'm like, oh my God, they're going to they're gonna really dig into me and find out what's going on. It's scared. And in fact, the first couple of times we just talked and they tried to find out what was going on in my life. Me in denial still, I blamed it on women. I figured, okay, it had to be a girl that hurt me because I was cold and numb and couldn't love anymore. And then when we started the process, they put a light bar up in front of me and some vibrating pads on my legs that I held. And um, we just started talking about things. And all of a sudden, here came the car accidents and the, the victims and, and the things I was blaming myself, all the guilt that I was holding inside. I started talking talking about it for the first time because we never did debriefings. So here I am unloading everything that was going on in my life and the nightmares, but it was odd because I was in control of it. We could stop them anytime. You know, it wasn't like a nightmare where I couldn't wake up. We were in control of them and we walked our way through them several times. And then after a little bit, it didn't, didn't bother me anymore. It sounds almost as if it's too good to be true. And it, like there's some hocus pocus behind this, but there really isn't. Yeah, and I, I don't know if anybody really has a real good answer of how it works other than, for me, it's like putting you into the the REM mode of sleep where your brain opens up and just allows it to let things out because you're watching this light bar go back and forth. So your eyes are going back and forth. And I think about that often that on all these fire scenes and accidents, all these trucks with all the chrome on them at night, and you got every flashing light out there flashing back and forth, you know, is that triggering our mind so we can't release things? You know, I, I often thought about that. There's something that's really nerve-wracking around 
Hollywood loves to do this. They don't do it with the sirens because of noise quality issues. But when you have multiple units on scene, and I'll tell you, one of the worst experiences I've ever had was was directing traffic on fire scenes. It always happened in the middle of the night in the worst weather. Brutal cold. And you've got fire trucks. You've got police cars. You've got sirens going. You've got lights going. And all that just... Sometimes you want to feel like inside, like you want to scream, but everybody just please shut up for a moment because I can't take it. Yeah. And yeah, every, from every direction. I mean, you, yeah, you can't escape it. It's right there. And then you're in a cold outside cold area, you know, your gears freezing up and then you go into this place, this house that's on fire. You come out steaming before you get to the truck, your gears all froze up. Your clothes are froze. Sometimes up here, the fire trucks even freeze before we can get water pumping. So there's just so many different elements of it. And that's without, you know, thinking about the victims. Yeah. And then you throw in the aspect of, and I'm not, I'm not minimizing this because it's taken a long time, Scott, to be, to get to where I'm at today, where I can talk about certain things. I can talk about deaths. I can talk about overdose deaths. I can talk about people being killed in accidents. I can talk about people being killed in violent acts. I can even talk about violence against me, but there are times where I can't and I get all ramped up. I mean, it's not like it used to be, but are you still there or has this EMDR gotten rid of that totally? It, it pretty much has gotten rid of it all. I mean, I I don't have any nightmares. I mean, I don't have any cravings for the mess. I can't believe how peaceful I am. I don't get angry. Flashbacks are gone. I can drive by the crosses and, you know, that was a bad day, but we did everything we could. And then when things happen now, it's that EMDR helped me process things, helped me learn how to process things. So now if I have a bad day or you know, even fatalities um, in the family or something, it still hurts. But I don't let it fill my backpack anymore. I talk to somebody about it and I, I let it go. I mean, the best you can. And this has become a mission for you taking what you went through and helping other first responders, other victims of post-traumatic stress, correct? Yeah, I now travel around the country, and I love what I do. I'm, I'm able to help others and share my journey. I don't use a PowerPoint. I just stand up there and I talk about my journey and what I went through. I don't point any fingers. I don't tell anybody what they have to do. This is what happened to me, and it's I just lay it out there and try to tell 10 years of my life in an hour's time. And, you know, I talk about the post-traumatic success because that's what it is. It, PTSD is not a death sentence or a life sentence. You know, there's therapy instead of going through divorces and the addictions and, and everything like that, that comes with the PTSD, go seek some help and talk about stuff. I've had so many first responders that have reached out to me. And the one, one case, the guy had five divorces and he's like, man, I wish I would have done this EMDR a lot sooner. Because now he's like, my my ex-wives aren't really that bad of people. So it's kind of funny. Now he's got five ex-wives that he gets along great with. So. Yeah. And unfortunately, with fire and police, multiple marriages is part of the equation for many, many people. You said earlier, much earlier in the conversation, you realized you were pushing away people that you loved and you didn't want them to leave. And they did. Yeah. Um, but with my sons and my ex-girlfriend. Um, I've got a new girlfriend now and everything's great, but it's changed. I mean, I, I made the changes also, you know, and it's not just the words, it's the actions. And now my sons reach out to me when they have difficult decisions to make. 
I mean, they, they reach out and they're excited about something that happened mental health wise with somebody and they were there to help them or something that's happening with themselves. And they share that with me, you know, and we talk through it. I'm so glad to hear that you, you are doing well. If people want to get in touch with you, you got speaking engagements, whatever it want to be, where can they get more information? Um, CNNcolor.com is my website. Um, I'm on Facebook. I don't have a book out yet. It's in the works. Scott, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Thank you. If you want to be a guest on the show, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, but you know doesn't want to say, uh, I don't want to seek attention myself, we'd love to hear from them. And we'd accommodate them from anywhere. It doesn't matter where they are. We're in Florida. They, don't, they could be anywhere. Minnesota. Wisconsin, Oregon, doesn't matter. We can uh, record them here at our studios in South Florida. Send an email to me, jay at lawenforcementtoday.com or robert at lawenforcementtoday.com. You can also send a message via Facebook. We're all over this thing called the World Wide Web, Instagram and all that stuff too. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.